This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles. Welcome to Season 3 of Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. Today we're talking about how to manage the curb and parking in this age of ride-hailing services, micromobility, Amazon and food deliveries, and autonomous vehicles. Our guest is Hank Wilson, Policy Manager in Parking and Curb Management for the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency. Hank, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Great. So on this podcast, we've been looking at how autonomous vehicles will develop, the technical and policy challenges involved, and their impact on cities. And since autonomous vehicles will be developed first in fleets, we also have been looking at TNCs like Uber and Lyft and how they get around in cities. And then last year, we had this further technological development with micromobility and the introduction of lightweight electrical vehicles, electric vehicles like scooters and bikes. And all of these technology developments together have caused a wider group of people to start paying attention to allocation of space on streets and curbs to accommodate these different modes and reduce traffic. And so that's why we wanted to talk with you today. Um, And, you know, I'll start by saying we're all armchair quarterbacks now. You guys at SFMTA and other transportation planners across the country have been studying these issues for years and making policy recommendations. And the rest of us have just shown up, and now we're saying, hey, what's taking so long? So I, I apologize in advance for, <laughs> for being uh, the armchair quarterback that we all are. Um, but it seems like the upside for cities is that you, you have more people now paying attention and supporting sustainable options, um, maybe with some urgency. Do you feel like the political winds are shifting a little on that? Well, there's no doubt that transportation, just as a topic, is is hot and is much more popular than certainly in the time that I've been working and the curve, especially and how people get to where they're going and people, I think realizing that, Oh wow. All these different mobility modes need access because eventually people want to get out of that car or they want to drop off that meal. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's a lot of, a lot of interest here in San Francisco where I work. There's, the sort of cross current of the tech wave now having crusted and and moving into more of a tech backlash and a lot of these new mobility services are tech enabled or they're sort of viewed as part of the tech industry and so that creates its own political challenges um, in that a lot of these modes are seen as just making money for tech companies or just serving tech workers that sort of thing. Yeah, San Francisco is really its own political animal in that way. Um, The politics of it, especially around micromobility, you know, are a little bit crazy, right? Because you have a lot of people who are environmentalists and who have been trying to get people to move away from the car. But then when the electric scooters became available, you had kind of a backlash against it because, oh, they're tech companies. And it's like, really? This is, <laughs> this is what you've wanted all along, <laughs> small electric vehicles. So it, it, it's kind of a funny place politically, I think. Um, but you guys yeah. are ground zero. I mean, you know, 
um, as much as we have innovation in, in the technology sector in San Francisco, as a government agency, you guys are kind of thrown in the middle of having to do your own innovation um, in real time uh, in response. So tell us um, what you're doing at SFMTA, what your role is, and what, what the program is you're working on. Yeah, so my official title is Policy Manager for Parking and Curb Management. And curb management is a term that I think gets used a lot, certainly at the, with the people I talk to and the conferences that I go to. But what it means is effectively regulations for who gets to use the curb and when and for how long and how much they have to pay, if they have to pay. And the idea is that it's it's parking and then everything else that, that is accessing the curb or using the curb for some period of time. The group used to be called the parking group, and one of the reasons that we've tried to move towards curb management is an acknowledgement that parking, especially long-term parking of personal vehicles, is just one use of the curb. It's just one way that we manage the curb. And in fact, in a lot of places, it's probably not the most efficient use of the curb. And so my team's role is to set policy and regulations for the curb, one of our biggest tasks is to create what we're calling a curb management strategy, which will be a policy document that provides guidance both to the public and to project managers about this is how we allocate curb space in different parts of the city. These are these are how we make our priorities. These are how we decide that this kind of loading or this kind of parking is going to get priority over some other kind of curb use um, and. So that's been a really exciting uh, project, and hopefully we'll we'll provide guidance to to everybody and, and sort of keep the spirit of transparency going. Where we say this is this is how we're making decisions, and we want everybody to know. And so when we're doing a streetscape project or a transit project or something like that, and we're putting the curve back together, these are what these are the guidelines that we're using. So what are the steps that you? have to go through in order to do that. Do you first need to understand all the curb space and have some sort of a, a digital database or representation of the curbs in the city? Well, I think a digital database of all the curbs in the city is something that we would love to have and something that we're working on, but it's something that we definitely don't have right now. Mm -hmm. I think most of the work that the SFMTA does is very project-based. So we're doing a transit project between 11th Avenue and Arguello along a certain street, or building a bike lane along 10 blocks of a certain street. And so what that means is that we can go out, and even if we don't already have a digital curb map, we can go out and actually measure all of the things that are on the curb, create a curb map for that project area, and then kind of make our decisions from there. And there's a the, the strategy is still in draft form, so it's certainly not finalized, but I think the basic route that you would take is to say, okay, what kind of land use is this? Is it a neighborhood commercial? Is it downtown? Is it right next to a major transit station or next to a ballpark or something like that? Because obviously those different land use types are going to have different curb needs and different access needs. And once you've determined that, then you look at the curb prioritization. And the first thing that you look at is, are there any sort of modal priorities or decisions that the city and the agency has already made to say, this is going to be a transit street and we are going to use this lane or the curb as a transit um, lane exclusively because that's going to take precedence and then we're going to say, okay, well, there's not going to be any 
loading or parking happening at that at that curb because that's going to be a bus lane. Um, and then you move down the list of what what access functions are most necessary. If there's a transit line that needs bus stops, that's going to take precedence because buses carry the most people most efficiently. Uh, if it's a bike route, then you're going to want to uh, prioritize bike parking um, and other things that make biking safer. Um, if it's a, a high, in, high injury corridor that we've identified that there are lots of safety issues happening, then we want to prioritize things that increase pedestrian safety, and then you sort of go on down the list. So how do you think about, so it sounds like you start with different neighborhoods and look at um, your priorities, starting with transit. And then um, as you get further down the list and you're thinking about uh, uses for the curb, how do you think about and measure curb productivity? You mentioned, you know, buses kind of move the most people, but for other uses, how do you look at curb productivity? That's a great question, and it's something that we have. We don't have a full answer for that. Um, you're probably familiar with the curb study that Fair and Peers did for Uber several months ago, where they they have this measure that they specifically call the curb productivity index, I think, and it's a pretty straightforward measure. It's it's only about passenger loading now. It doesn't it doesn't address freight, but it says essentially how many people can you deliver to this location per length of curb. So obviously buses do really well on that score. Shuttle buses do really well on that score. Uh, what the Uber report revealed, probably not surprisingly, is that passenger loading zones where people are being dropped off by individual vehicles do pretty well, not as well as buses, but a lot better than individual car parking. Um, so I think that makes a lot of sense uh, in terms of how how you would measure. If, if your goal is to, to deliver people safely and efficiently to a place, then that makes a lot of sense. It's a little more challenging with freight um, because it's not just about like the number of packages that are delivered or the number of pounds of freight that you deliver because freight comes in all shapes and sizes and some is more valuable than others and some blocks have different uh, loading and freight needs than others. Some have a furniture store, some have restaurants, and so there's going to be different kinds of freight being loaded. So we're still thinking about that, but I think, you know, it's, it's not rocket science. It's basically what, what forms, what curb uses or curb access functions deliver the most people and goods most efficiently. So let's talk about some of these uses of the curb that you've mentioned. Um, let's start with street parking. I think historically, when most people think about the curb, um, and when you look out at a city, uh, you think about parked cars um, taking up a lot of street space. And I know historically in San Francisco, a lot of that parking was free or very cheap, and cars could, you know, might stay there for a long period of time and San Francisco's done a lot to change that with demand responsive pricing but um, which I know you you've spent a good part of your career working on um, if you're thinking about um, measuring street parking or whether to keep street parking do you look at turnover do you um, think about uh, whether there's relevant garage space nearby that someone could use as an alternative like how do how do you decide um 
whether to keep street parking, whether to remove some street parking, how do you measure that or think about that? That's another great question. Uh, I have a, you know, one of the one of the things I spend a lot of time doing in my job is looking at the California Vehicle Code and the San Francisco Transportation Code that govern all of the parking and curb management decisions that we make. And I had a realization the other day that there's not actually anything in the Vehicle Code or the Transportation Code that permits parking. It's just assumed that private car parking is there. It's kind of the background. And so if you want to take away parking or you want to turn something into a loading zone or you want to make it bike parking or you want to make it a transit zone or essentially anything other than private car parking, then there is a provision in the code that you have to cite and you have to pass legislation to do that. But if you just build a street and you don't say anything and you don't put out any signs, then the assumption is that it's private car parking. And so I think that that's an interesting perspective to to remember when we're going in and doing projects and people say, well, you're taking away so much parking. And it's like, well, we're not really taking away parking. We're reallocating this public right-of-way to something that we think is safer and more efficient. And so that's, that's sort of our guiding principle. I mean, we're lucky in San Francisco to have the Transit First policy that was passed back in the 70s, and it's part of the city charter, and it says that transportation decisions and um, how you allocate public right-of-way needs to be guided by benefiting transit walking and biking first. And so that's a helpful guide, obviously, but it doesn't help you so much when you're going in you know, on a specific block and talking to a specific stakeholder about something that's happening right in front of their home or right in front of their business. Um, so we tend to, in terms of how we allocate space and, and how we decide whether to preserve parking or reallocate it for something else, um, the, I think we we then look to our other overarching strategic goals, like the city has also passed Vision Zero, which is a safety goal to say we're going to eliminate traffic deaths and, and serious injuries uh, on our streets. And so a lot of times to do that, we need to reallocate space from private car parking to a bike lane or to a sidewalk bulb out or to uh, some kind of safety zone, things that uh, give more space to people um, and give more visibility to drivers and to people on bikes. And, and we, the agency just passed um, its Vision Zero action strategy, and one of the innovations in this iteration, I think they do it every two years, was to say that the best way to make a, the street safer is to get more people out of their cars. Because cars hitting people, that is what causes death and serious injury on the streets. And so to the extent that we can promote things other than driving in your personal vehicle to get places, then we're going to make the streets safer. Um, so I don't know I don't know if that directly answers your question. Yeah, no, it absolutely. Sort of, it sort of was intended to skirt it a little bit. Yeah, so, you know, it is super interesting that the default is that you can park on the side of the street unless there's legislation or designation that you can't. Um, what is the code that would need to be changed um, to change that default. And when you say, well, you have to pass legislation in order to, you know, designate something like a loading zone or whatever, is that at the city level or the state level or how, how does that work? Well, it's a combination. And I would say, I mean, the, the code that we need to change, frankly, the entire vehicle code and the entire, I'm familiar with the San Francisco transportation code are 
completely built around this idea that private car parking is the default, is what happens if you don't designate it as something else. And so it would take a pretty major overhaul of those two sections to, to really get at this idea that, that cities have to affirmatively say we are going to designate parking here. Um, you know, I think depending on who, which advocate you're talking to, the, the default should be maybe if you don't say anything, then that means it's a transit lane, or maybe that means it's a bike lane, or maybe that means it's no parking, um, and it's going to be a travel lane. And then if you want to designate it as something, either bike parking or car parking or a loading zone, then you need to say that. Um, yeah, that would be an interesting switch. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, it's, a, it's a real combination. The vehicle code and the transportation code work together. Obviously, the vehicle code dictates um, where and when cities are allowed to regulate, but it provides a lot of latitude to cities to, to regulate things like parking meter zones, loading zones, residential permit parking districts, things like that. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, you got to read the two in tandem when you're sort of figuring out what, what's governing in any particular situation. So if you um, are looking at a block and you decide you want to remove uh, two parking spots, one at either end of the block for daylighting in order to improve visibility for pedestrians. And so you want to take a parking, what used to be a metered parking spot and change it to a red curb. Um, what's the process that you go through to do that? So in San Francisco, we have a pretty robust uh, public outreach and legislation process. Uh, and so what's in the code which is the bare minimum, is that we, we do what we call a pre-staff meeting where that's, that's people inside the MTA. Anybody who might be interested gets to take a look and say, oh, you know, maybe, maybe that's not a good idea because we actually have some other project that's coming through that's going to remove that parking anyway for a bike lane mm -hmm. um, or whatever. And then, you know, once it makes it through that level of review, then it goes to a committee that is, consists of other city agencies like the police department, the fire department, the planning department who are going to be interested in these kind of changes to the street. And if it passes that level of review, then it goes to a public hearing, which happens at City Hall, open to the public. No decision is made, but people are invited to come and express their support or concern or questions about the project. And then most things then need to proceed from that public hearing to the SFMTA Board of Directors meeting where there, it's another public hearing and that's where the Board of Directors actually makes a decision about um, that particular thing. There are a few things that uh, only need to go to public hearing um, and then the city traffic engineer, um, if there's sufficient support at the public hearing, can sign a directive and say, make it so. But most parking changes have to go to uh, the MTA Board of Directors. And the interesting thing about that is that um, that has changed a little bit in the past year or so San Francisco is unique in that it has this independently appointed board that governs the transportation agency. And the idea when that was created about 20 years ago was we want there to be an independently appointed board. All the board members are appointed by the mayor and we kind of want them to be independent and we want them to be thinking citywide. We don't want them to be thinking about politics. We don't want them to be thinking about this is going to impact this one particular block because we want them to be thinking about the network and moving bikes and buses and cars through the city in a safe and efficient manner. Um, 
but the Board of Supervisors, which is like San Francisco City Council, just passed uh, an ordinance several months ago, maybe a year ago, that gave them the power to review MTA Board of Directors decisions in some cases and pretty much in all cases where we're changing something about parking. Interesting. So there's a lot of a lot of layers of review in the last three, you know, the, the public hearing, the MTA board hearing, and then if if uh, the Board of Supervisors decides to review it, then that's also a public hearing where people can come and express their support or opposition or questions or whatever. Right. So um, speaking of parking and, and street parking, do you see an impact uh, in the city on the demand for parking based on the uptick in TNCs? In other words, are you seeing, I, I know the, the city's street parking, at least, and probably the garage parking have this kind of demand responsive pricing where you can see what the demand is and whether it's upticks and downticks at various points in time. Um, between the garages and the street parking, are you able to tell whether there's less demand for parking in light of TNCs? Well, it's hard to tell or to know exactly why, but we are definitely seeing, and definitely in our garages, a, uh, a downward trend in terms of utilization. The suspicion is that that's probably because of TNCs uh, and all these other micromobility services that you mentioned that, you know, if you were someone who used to drive downtown from your house or apartment in the city, maybe now you can get on an electric bike or a scooter or take an Uber and the price differential isn't big enough uh, to make a difference. And so I think that probably has something to do with it, um, but but we're still sort of exploring what, what we think the, the overall, the reasons behind uh, the decreases in, in garage revenue. Um, and on street, we are also seeing uh, reductions in our meter revenue, but I think that's mostly because we are removing meters for other priorities. All these things that I've talked about before, where we're putting in transit lanes and bike lanes and daylighting, bulb outs, other safety treatments that remove a little bit of parking here and there, and the impact has been that we've, um, we've reduced our revenue, which I think... You know, I, I, of course, work for the MTA, so I'm, I'm a booster, but I think it speaks to the fact that we, we're not driven by revenue. I think that that's been an accusation that's happened in the past, and I think we can show pretty definitively, no, we're, we're driven by Transit First and Vision Zero, you know, putting, trying to make the, the, the trains and the buses run faster and trying to make things safer is what's driving us, and if that means that we have to take out some meters and lose a little revenue, we're willing to do it. Yeah. Great. Well, let's let's talk about TNCs, uh, Uber and Lyft, uh, and other ride services. Um, there's been a lot of focus on the increase in traffic potentially from these services, and people thinking in the future that if the services become cheaper with autonomous vehicles and autonomous ride services, that um, that this could be a a, a worsening problem. Um, but it seems like people like to be dropped off that, you know, if you'd ever asked somebody, you know, before Uber and Lyft, Hey, do you think people will use the internet to 
call a stranger and get in their car, people would have said, that's crazy. But the <laughs> adoption rate is huge, right? So people like this, people who live in San Francisco want to be able to get around using Uber and Lyft. And in fact, it, you know, I think for a lot of people who don't really want to have a car in the downtown area or in the city, it's helped them to not have a car. So if people want to use TNCs, um, it seems like this really does impact the curb and the idea of loading and unloading. So what are you looking at with respect to the curb and, and the this productivity point about pickups and drop-offs? And are you thinking about pilot programs or how are you trying to figure out, you know, how to accommodate the idea that people want to be picked up and dropped off at the curb. Yeah, I think that's that's really the core of what the curb management team that I lead is, is tasked with doing. And um, and I think I view, you know, I, ha I have a lot of thoughts and opinions about Uber and Lyft generally and, you know, why they've found popularity and whether they're benefiting cities and the transportation sector in general. But as the transportation regulator in San Francisco, I think one of our main tasks is to say, well, this is what's going on out on the streets right now. And so we need to do things to make sure that it's as safe and efficient as possible. So we can we can work on, you know, if we have opinions about, and we, I think the agency certainly does, and it's made that very clear with filings that it's made with the California PUC and, and others in terms of that we think that people should be taking taxis instead of TNCs, but they're there, they're a major part of the transportation system, and so we need to deal with it. And so, yeah, I think the main task that we, the, the main way that we want to address all of this loading demand um, is, you know, one is that we do point out the loading demand is not totally new, and double parking is not a new thing. It's something that's been happening in San Francisco for a long time. It's something that's been happening in big cities for a long time. And I remember visiting New York when I was a kid, and I thought it was so cool that you know, people just stop wherever they want, <laughs> and no one seems to care, and everyone just goes around them. Right. Um, but, but it's obviously TNCs and what we call courier network services are these on-demand delivery companies like Postmates and DoorDash and Caviar and all the rest have really brought to the forefront that you know, loading is an important issue, double parking has major impacts. And so our take is we need to just start to be more holistic and strategic about how we allocate curb space. And so we need to go in and do corridor-based or location-based curb management planning, which is not something that the agency has done in the past. You know, I think, I think the SFMTA has been pretty far out in front actually on in terms of curb allocation you know we have an entire team it's called our color curb team that's dedicated to the, the different colors of the curb which in california you can designate different kinds of loading or different kinds of parking based on what color you paint the curb and so we've been doing that for a long time but it's it's very um, application based it's very request based in fact it's all request based and so if it's, a, it's a dependent on a business or an individual or a nonprofit or a school or whoever coming to us and saying, we think we need a loading zone or we think we need a short-term parking zone in front of our particular parcel. And then we'll review that and we'll allocate it if we think it's correct. But that's not the most efficient way to go about it. And it also ignores all the times where maybe there's a lot of loading happening in front of a business, but they don't know that they can come to us and ask for it or they don't want to. They don't have time. 
or the loading is happening in a place in front of a business that's closed because people are getting out and going to the business next door. Um, so we need to be actively out there gathering data, taking input from the community um, about where this needs to happen and then going out and, and actively planning. And then what we do when we actively and sort of holistically plan the curve is that we we try to make some common sense rearranging you know, again, it's not rocket science, but our, and, our, and we're collecting data to justify all these assumptions, but the, the idea is that a 20-foot a truck loading zone that's right in the middle of the block isn't that useful, and you've probably seen it. I know I see it all the time where a truck is double parked next to an empty loading zone, and it's because they couldn't get in. Mm. Um, so if we put that 20-foot loading zone at the far side of an intersection where they can use the intersection to pull to the curb, then they're more likely to use it. If we make it 40 feet instead of 20 feet, they're more likely to use it. If we put commercial loading zones next to passenger loading zones, then they're more likely to get used because they're more likely to be clear and give more people give more space for people to pull over to the curb. Just things like that, um, where going in and essentially planning rather than just reacting. And you know, as you're saying this, and you know, I've worked downtown in San Francisco for 25 years. Um, and, you know, when you look at the require the needs, you know, there's a lot of one way streets, um, you know, like battery and Sansom and things like that. And you have trucks, you know, you have the FedEx truck pulled over, you have an Uber pulled over and they're double parked because they're, there's street parking on either side of those streets. Have you guys thought, you know, you're talking about kind of this holistic approach and instead of doing piecemeal, can we just, you know, kind of take a step back and look overall? Have you thought about doing something, even as a pilot, a little more sweeping, like let's take, um, you know, every other block, you know, every other street in the financial district and just remove all of the street parking and make all of it for, you know, FedEx and, and UPS and and pick up and drop off and, um, you know, and on the other side, you know, put in a bike lane and, and just take those two extra lanes on, on these streets that are being used for parking cars and just use them for, I mean, it seems like there's so many uses that you're describing that we need for the street. I'm just wondering, is there any thought to kind of taking the most congested business districts and just removing street parking wholesale. Um, there's so many garages there that people could use. And as you point out, they're underutilized. So it just seems like that would be an interesting experiment. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And in fact, in the financial district in San Francisco, we've done something like that um, back in the 90s, I think, long before I was working here. The transportation engineering folks blanketed the financial district with mostly commercial loading zones or yellow zones uh, under that idea that there is so much commercial loading happening down there that almost, in, in certain cases, entire blocks just need to be all commercial loading. And it had the side benefit of also suggesting to drivers, don't even think about trying to find a parking space you know, on Montgomery Street right downtown. It's just not going to happen. You should go straight to a garage or you should take Muni or take BART to get mm -hmm. uh, to the financial district. So we've already done some of that, um, especially in the financial district. But, yeah, I think it's a really good idea to 
start to, I think I, I, I tried to trot out this idea of like curved geometry or something like that, and it mm -hmm. hasn't really caught on, but that what if, what if everyone who drove around in San Francisco just knew that in neighborhood commercial districts, the first 100 feet of every block are loaded? And so you just know that's where you go if you want to drop somebody off or pick up your meal or whatever. And, and if you miss it, if you don't see it on the first block, don't worry. You know, as soon as you get to the next block, there's going to be another 100 feet for you to load. Uh, I think that that's a really interesting idea. One, what we want to do is try out, we want to test some of these assumptions before making those sort of dramatic changes because there is a lot of, I mean, all of, like I said, all of our projects, all of the stuff that we do is project-based and it's all very stakeholder engagement focused. And when you're talking to a specific business or a school or whatever, they're very concerned about, well, we need the parents to get right here, right in front of our school, or my customers or my delivery folks need to be right here, and if you put them down the street, it's not going to work. I, I th we think that it probably could work, and in fact, that's probably what's happening in a lot of a lot of times because to the extent that right in front of their business is just private car parking, then those cars probably aren't moving all day, and the delivery folks have yeah. to go down the street anyway. But I think we, need to, we need to test it out. And, we we need to demonstrate that people will get dropped off and then walk a quarter block back to the restaurant that they're going to or something. And so, so we're trying to test it out in smaller areas. And if that if it proves true, then yeah, I think we would we would start to do it on a larger scale. Yeah. Well, I I vote uh, Battery Sansom Montgomery as uh, as prime candidates. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of decisions that the city makes that are unpopular at the time, like getting rid of the Embarcadero Freeway, for those of us who were here then, um, that were just the right thing to do. And so, you know, this whole thing about public hearings and whatever, that's fine. But at the end of the day, if it increases safety and you know, enables traffic to flow freely, you know, I, I, I think at some point the city just, you know, has to, to make these decisions regardless of what, you know, two individual business owners on a block, you know, have to say about it because they don't actually know, you know, what the, what's better, better for them, you know, who knows, you know, <laughs> a lot of times when you open it up and you have bike traffic, the business goes up for these people. So it's, I don't know. Uh, it's frustrating yeah. for those of us who, who are not in government, uh, who are looking at these things and saying, wow, you know, can't we just try it? Um, but speaking of which, and in, in, in frustration, let, let's talk about protected lanes. This has been a big issue uh, in San Francisco, and I know in a lot of other cities, uh, particularly this year with the explosion of micromobility, um, you know, a number of people who would like to ride an electric scooter who maybe have never been cyclists before or, or use those lanes are, are now asking, um, you know, what can we do to um, have this protected lane established um, whether it's par a parking protected lane or with the little plastic sticks in the ground. Um, so many people have been advocating for so long for more infrastructure in this area. Um, but I, I feel like with micromobility, there's kind of a tipping point um, with 
more people who would use it, I guess maybe it's a chicken and egg thing here, but I think more people would use um, such a lane if it were protected. How, how are you thinking about that? And how should people um, advocate who are in support of this type of infrastructure? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the protected, especially, I mean, we call them bike lanes, but you're right that they really would function as bike lanes or scooter lanes or, or who knows uh, automated, what comes next. You know, yeah, <laughs> powered skateboard lanes or whatever. Yeah. Um, as, as they do now in San Francisco, I ride my bike around and I now share the lane with all these other types of mobility services. But yeah. um, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not a bike planner, but I think that to your earlier point, the way we make decisions is still very focused on public meetings and who comes out, who sends an email. Um, so I think that if there is a project that you're that you have a person who who wants to use this lane is excited about, then you need to come to the meeting and express that support. Um, and you need to get your friends to come to the meeting and express that support and also demonstrate how you know you use the street, you stop on the street. You park your scooter, you get off, you go to the businesses, you spend money. I think to really get that message across that this is actually, you know, there's, we talk a lot about, you mentioned the chicken and the egg, and I think there is that if you build it, they will come concept with all sorts of transportation. And it's true with cars too. I mean, you know, if, if you build a new freeway, it just fills up right away because now there's just more ways to get around. And so if you build bike lanes, then people will use them. If you run more buses, then more people will ride the bus. And if you make the, the bike lanes and the, the, the ways to travel safer and, and more efficient, then people will use it. And we also have this concept of moving away from vehicle throughput to person throughput. You know, that if you, people complain that, oh, you put a transit lane, you put a bus lane on this street and now traffic is backed up. But if you look at the number of people who are able to move through that corridor, it's gone significantly up because the buses carry so more, many more people than, than the cars. And the same is true for scooters and bikes and everything else. You, know, that you can move a lot more people through a place or to a place on those modes. And I think that's, I think that's a framing that is helpful. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think it's, still, it's still very much about like coming to public meetings, making your voice heard as, as a way to advance projects, and, and supporting advocates who do a lot of great work around, you know, pedestrian safety, biking, things like that. Yeah, I, I saw the SFMTA recently implemented kind of a quick build strategy because I think the other frustration that folks have had is that, you know, SFMTA is identified, as you pointed out, sort of these project-based, you know, neighborhood projects where they're going to do a bike lane or, you know, a, a combination of improvements. Um, Valencia Street would be one. And, you know, it's sort of been identified and planned, but then it takes like two or three years to implement it. Can you give folks a sense for what the um, difficulties are? Is it the traffic signaling? Is it uh, painting and and, uh, concrete? Like what is it that takes so long to implement a project once it's been approved? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things, and frankly, I do think that the it's 
oftentimes implementation is pretty quick after approval. It's just really getting to the approval is what takes so long. And it's lots and lots of public meetings. It's lots of discussions with various stakeholders. And I don't mean in any way to minimize the importance of those, but they, they take time, they take staff time and resources, and they don't always result in, or very rarely do they result in any kind of consensus. And so then it you know, requires going back and making changes, and that's that's really what takes a long time. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, there are, especially with more intensive capital projects, there are, if you have to pour concrete or if you have to jackhammer up concrete, that takes time. It also requires a lot of coordination, making sure that you're keeping traffic moving through a place. We, we can't just shut streets down for months at a time to do work. Um, and yeah, traffic light uh, changes actually take are, are really pretty complicated and take a lot of money and a lot of time. I'm, I'm also not a traffic engineer, so I don't know. I can't speak to the specifics of that. Um, but there's all sorts of really detailed engineering issues that come up, especially when you're pouring concrete, you know, because streets generally have a, I'm getting really in the weeds here, but, you know, these are the kinds of things that I find fascinating where I think the same thing, like, why does this take so long? And then I'll talk to the project manager and they say, well, that street has a crown on it, which is designed to funnel the rainwater into the the uh, storm drains. And you just, if you want to put a passenger boarding island or a floating curb or something like that, then that completely changes the crown of the street. That completely changes where the rainwater is running off to. Um, and then you have flooding at that business next door because the storm drain is not accepting the, the water anymore. Um, and if you want to move sidewalks or anything like that, then that's a major, major utility um, effort because you have to move storm drains, you have to move telephone poles, you have to move everything that's on the street or next to the street. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot involved in, um, in streetscape work. Uh, they definitely, I've been really impressed um, with our Livable Streets team, which is the bike planning and implementation team. But they've made some, some major improvements and sped things up, including, you know, just simple stuff like realizing that we don't have to excavate down like a foot to put in to pour new concrete, which was the sort of the traditional city way. And it's probably the, the absolute safest and, and number one way to do it, but they realized, oh, if you just pour concrete on top of the asphalt, that concrete's not going anywhere. So <laughs> that's a lot faster. You know, things like that. Like right. Making, and, oh, and it, you know, if we, if we put little cutouts in the floating curb, then the water can still get through, but it still provides the protection that we need, and so we don't have to recrown the street. You know, just coming up with ways to make these things work a little faster. And how much um, would you say of the... Um, the difficulty in getting these projects completed is based on kind of a budget concern or a lack of funds versus just the complexities around ap approval and, and actual implementation. Like, is there a money problem here? There's definitely a money problem when it comes to the major um, transportation infrastructure investments, like, you know, things like a second BART tube or like, um, buying new train cars and making major upgrades to train stations and train boarding islands and all that kind of stuff. That stuff is really expensive and we have very limited funds for it. I do think one of the things that I, one of the reasons I like working in curb management is that it's mostly just paint and signs and there's a lot of really cool stuff you can do with paint and signs or the 
safe hit posts that you talked about earlier uh, that are super cheap. And so for those projects, it, most of the time and the effort is, is the, the public outreach and the stakeholder engagement and all that. It's not, it's not that expensive. That's one of the things that makes it attractive. Um, but for the, for the larger scale changes, like if we're trying to build a new light rail line or a new subway line, those things are extremely expensive and I think we're always lacking in, in yeah. adequate funds for that. So with respect to things like, you know, the protected lanes where you're saying, you know, it's mostly just pain and, and things that are not that expensive, um, you know, it, it seems like it's a huge safety issue for the city, right? We've seen all these fatalities this year, you know, a number of, of collisions. Um, you know, if the city needed a fire hydrant in order to keep buildings safe, I don't think they'd go out and ask permission and public hearings and everything um, to make sure everybody agreed, on, you know, let okay, we can put in a fire hydrant that, you know, is going to save your building. Um, I think you would just do it. And so at some level, I just wonder if the city is going to decide that this is such a safety issue as more and more people are riding these micromobility devices that, you know, maybe there has to be a different process for things that, like, really impact um, safety. And so it's it's kind of an interesting uh, problem to say, well, it's going to take two years because we have to have public hearings and, and accommodate everybody's concerns, but in the meantime, people are dying. Yeah, I, I don't have much to add to that. I think it's a, it's a great point. And, and I think, you know, the quick build uh, stuff that you mentioned and just the passage of Vision Zero generally I think we're getting there. People are realizing like this is a this is a safety issue, and if 35 people die, that's 35 people who died, and if 35 people died some other way, uh, and something that we could change about our city, we would say we have to change that. Right. Um, and so it's a it's a it's a major major public health issue that I think people are more and more realizing is, is should be paramount. All right, people, write to your public officials, (laughs) (laughs) but not to Hank. (laughs) Well, Hank, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Really appreciate uh, you coming on and having this discussion with us. Yeah, I I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It It was fun. All right. Take care. Thanks again to Hank for joining us. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts, as it will help other people find the show. For our show notes for this episode and all of our other episodes, please see our Medium publication called Smarter Cars. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.